Welcome back to In-Depth Commercial Real Estate. This show is an open exploration of the people, ideas, and methods behind commercial real estate. I'm your host, Paul Eaton. Our guest today is Gene Trowbridge. Gene is a nationally recognized syndication and securities attorney. He is the founding partner of Trowbridge Law Group, which concentrates on the syndication of investment real estate. Gene, thank you for coming on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. You've taken a very interesting path to providing counsel to syndicators. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure, Paul. Thanks for having me, first of all. My career has kind of three phases, and it all takes me to where I am today. The first phase was I was a commercial real estate broker for maybe seven or eight years right out of college, and uh, that was fine. But then I started uh, putting together small groups to buy properties because like every other syndicator, I did not have enough money to buy all the properties I wanted to buy myself, so I had to pool the money. So about 20 years went by, and uh, oh, 850 investors in one year, it was 1,676 K-1s. I said I'd had enough of that. The investors just wore me out. And in those days, there were no support companies who could do the back office stuff for you. You had to do it all by yourself. So I said, well, what would I do now? And I decided to go to law school. I take my commercial real estate experience, my real estate syndication experience, put some law with it and go into the world of representing people on commercial real estate and syndication. Paul, what was interesting when I discussed this with my wife, I was basically 45 and I said, you know, this will be good for the last 15 years of my career. Well, that was 27 years ago. (laughs) So I'm still doing it. You mentioned how you were once a syndicator. So can you tell us from a legal point of view, what is a syndication? And what is a security? Sure. A syndication is just simply when two or more people get together to combine their resources and their money and their management skills to do something in a business world. All sorts of things are syndications. When you go to the movie and at the beginning of the movie, they have all these logos and icons of all these companies that got together to make the movie. Well, that was a syndication. A lot of things we do are syndications. And so that's fine because that's what we're doing. We're pooling money. But with enough investors and a certain structure, the government is concerned about protecting the passive investors. So way back in 1933, they passed the law which regulates things like syndications and takes it into a world called a security. And uh, a security is simply when, I'm plain English here, Paul, a group of investors get together in a common enterprise like an LLC. They're investing for a profit and the manager is going to make it all happen. So someone is in charge of all of the passive investors' money. And so the government wanted to police that. And so they wrote a couple of syndication laws in 33 and 34 to do just that. So that's if you went to the if anyone wanted to read, they would go to the case called SEC v. Howie, H-O-W-E-Y, and read about the four prong tests in investment of money in a common enterprise with an expectation of profit through the results of a promoter. This is not GoFundMe. I need braces, send me some money, and I'll get my new braces. Thank you very much, because there's no profit involved. 
So this is what it is. It's a syndication. It's a business venture. People give their money up and someone else is in charge. Often syndicators use Rule 506B and Rule 506C of Regulation D in raising their money. Can you talk a little bit about what those rules require and what is the difference between those two rules? Because they have some important differences, obviously. When the securities laws were written, they were to protect people who weren't rich and smart. The rich and smart people could fend for themselves. Well, that was an ambiguous set of rules. So in 1981, the securities laws were modified to create something called Regulation D. And Regulation D was really the rules that told you you could, as a syndicator, raise money from rich and smart people, and you could do it without fully registering your security with the SEC. And when Regulation D came out, there was really just one rule. And the rule was you could raise as much money as you wanted as long as you had all accredited investors and you did not advertise. You had to know everyone. Well, that went on for a while. And then the world changed with the Jobs Act. And Congress said, you know, we need to promote capital raising. So we'll take that set of rules that's there and we're going to add another rule, but now we're going to call it something. We're going to call this 506, Regulation D, Rule 506. And we're going to break that into two parts. 506B is the old law, raise as much money as you want from uh, as many accredited investors, no advertising. And in addition, you can take a 35 sophisticated investors. But Regulation 506C is the one that you can go to the marketplace, and this is the one that gathered the name crowdfunding. You can go to the marketplace, you can go on social media, you can raise money in any method that you want, as long as you follow the disclosure rules. But because you're advertising and taking people you don't know, you have to only take accredited investors, and uh, you need a third-party verification. So succinctly, and I kind of built the watch there, 506B, no advertising, a lot of accredited investors, 35 sophisticated investors. 506C, no sophisticated investors, advertise all you want and take as many accredited investors as you want. And in both of those, the amount of money that can be raised is unlimited. Well, let me tell you what the statistics are. The last statistics that came out from the SEC said that in Regulation D, which is private placement, you don't have to go to the SEC, in the 12 months that they studied it, there was $1.8 trillion raised, five times more than the IPOs on Wall Street during the same period of time. That's a great metric. 95% of the money is raised in 506B, where the sponsor knows the investors and can take sophisticated investors and accredited investors. And only 5% of the money is raised through the advertising. And I have a feeling I know why that is. Many, many syndicators have been around a long time and they don't need to advertise. They have all the investors they need. When we do a 506C, more than likely it's with a relatively new investor who wants to be able to go out into the public and build their database so they can come back and do 506Bs. How intrusive 
is the third party verification of an investor of their accredited status? Well, there are there are really four ways that uh, the sponsor has been directed that will solve as an accreditation. When I say intrusive, how intrusive is it to the investor? Right. Questions be okay. Right. Yeah. So th- there are four ways you can do it, and you can kind of see how intrusive. One way is you can go to a third party, a third party, and the third party will ask the investor questions and ask for proof. You can be accredited through your data income. So now the third party is going to ask for tax returns. You can be accredited through your net worth. Now the third party is going to ask for bank statements, financial statements, statements of your stock portfolio. So these are intrusive, right? These are things that are intrusive. Right. Or you could get uh, your own CPA to write a letter that says he knows you, he works with you, or she does and you are accredited, that's pretty easy. Or you could get an attorney to do that. But uh, most of the people go through a third-party verification company and they get the investor verified. Now that verification is only good for 90 days, Paul. Wow. So you could have to do that uh, regularly if you were a, a serial investor. What are the three largest mistakes that you see syndicators make on the legal side? Well, I think the first mistake is not understanding that they've moved into a new realm of business. I usually work with real estate people, and they don't always think that putting five, six, ten people together to buy something, all these people are friends or past clients, is security. So I think the big mistake is not really understanding that uh, you've gone into the securities world. The second mistake is understanding you've gone in the securities world and ignoring it and thinking you'll just do it anyhow, maybe even put together your own paperwork. Oh, that's a mistake. And then I think a third mistake is uh, not having enough time to draft your documents when you do work with an attorney. You know, but I think you're going to ask me about the questions that an investor should ask. And in those questions, I'm going to come up with more mistakes that syndicators make. But uh, not knowing it's a security, knowing it's a security, and ignoring that, and uh, not having enough time to do this right would be the three things that I see most often. How much time do you think should one budget to draft the legal docs? Or actually- 60 days, 60 days. It's a longer process, but 60 days. If you put a property into escrow and you had a 60 day escrow, be great if you had the potential to release some more money and get an extension. But if you had 60 days and you came to the attorney, Right when you had your letter of intent, uh, the attorney would have the documents done in three to four weeks, and that'll give you a a full month to collect your money. If you're doing 506B, you're already out there talking to the people that you know, telling them this is the deal. As soon as we get the paperwork done, I'm going to need your money. If you're doing a 506C, you can do what they call test the waters. You can just tell everyone anyway Mm. that you have a document coming out and they better keep their money liquid. So as soon as it comes out, you're gonna ask them to wire it to you. So I think that people need maybe 30 days to get all the money in. Some people go on vacation. Some people have things in their life that change so their money isn't liquid. Some people have to set up IRA accounts. So I think 30 days is about the time you need for the money raising of the deal. On the investor side, 
what are the questions that an accredited investor should ask in making the decision whether to invest in a syndication? You know, the whole issue with accredited investors, Paul, is they're supposed to be rich and smart. They're supposed to know all the questions to ask and do the evaluation themselves. They're educated in what they're investing in and all that's fine. So interestingly enough, my four questions, I have four of them, don't have anything to do with cash flow or net operating income or anything like that. The first question I think you should ask is, hey, Paul, if I give you my money, what happens if something happens to you? And that's a question about continuity. If Paul is the only person who's running the show and everything has to be signed by Paul, the bank looks to Paul for everything, and something happens to Paul, I mean, death, divorce, bankruptcy, illness, where are the investors? They're stuck. Or i.e. if the managing member is an individual. Oh, absolutely. Right. Similar. And that's problem. so so right. that the answer to that question is if you are a syndicator and you heard me say this is an important question, the answer is put together a managing member with more than one person. Right. Plan for something for continuity. Two people is fine, three would be better. But as a law firm, I will not write an offering for Paul as an individual uh, managing member. Even if you're in an LLC, that's not good enough. Some states, if the individual member in the LLC is uh, dead, the LLC dissolves. Now what do we have? Trouble, trouble, trouble. So that's the first question. The second question I think an investor should ask is, hey, Paul, have you done this before? And all of us have had to answer that question, no, to start. So the idea is let's get our first deal done. Let's make it a small deal, get it done. Mm. So when someone says, hey, have you done this before? They're talking about your experience. Uh, should they invest with you? I want you to be able to say, hell yes, at least once. <laughs> get it, do that. The third question an investor should ask is, Paul, in this deal, are the investors putting up all the money or are you putting up some money? Do you have any skin in the game? And uh, that's an interesting question. When I was doing it, it was just simply answered by how much money was I putting in the deal. But today it's money and signing the mortgage. Lending rules have changed, so we have to uh, deal with that. And I find that's part of the skin in the game. If you have to sign a mortgage, whether it's recourse or non-recourse, there are still parts of it that will come back to you. And so I think that's a, that's a question that uh, you should ask and find out uh, how invested in this deal is the syndicator. The last question is really a question just for the members, the investors. I've heard of some institutional investors asking how much of your net worth is going into either this fund or a particular deal, which is an interesting question. Oh, sure. That's fine. Uh, that's just another question of, uh, and this is a difficult situation for the syndicator because you want to please everyone. And so you say a big number. Mm. Well, that's going to hurt your ability to do a number of syndications. So I think you have to be careful about that. I've also seen on a deal where the syndicator says that they're putting a large chunk of equity in on the front end. If you look closely, immediately after the transaction, there is a management fee that is at least as large mm -hmm. as what they put in. Now, I still think when you're signing a personal guarantee, that is a, 
a very, very large incentive mm-hmm. to, to get things done right and on time and on budget. But nonetheless, when I see an offering, I like to see full transparency. And if they're going to be pulling their money out days after they close the deal, I want to see that, you know, clearly up. Well, isn't what you're saying that you want that disclosed? We always disclose that. Of course, I want to disclose, but sometimes it could be more transparent in the deals that I've seen. I'm not an investor on the the syndication Mm -hmm. side, but um, I think it's best for everyone in this space to be as transparent as possible. Because if an investor gets burned with a syndicator over here, they're likely not going to want to invest in any real estate in the future. And I think it serves everyone's interest to be as transparent and clear to investors as possible. I think you're right. And if you've read SEC complaints against syndicators like I have, we um, run into the issue that they say, and Paul took 5% of the money that was raised for himself before the deal even started and before the investors got their money back. And they can make that sound terrible. And they do. (laughs) That's part of the game. And then, Paul, the last question is, from the investor standpoint, Paul, if something happens to me and I need liquidity, what's the plan? And then, Paul, what you have to say is, well, we have an attorney who drafts our operating agreement. And uh, in the operating agreements we get from Trowbridge, Article 11 and 12, deal with liquidity, whether it's voluntary or involuntary. And we should agree that we should look at that. And you should be comfortable that to a certain extent, this investment is liquid. But you also have to know it's not like going down to the bank and just uh, closing out your account. It's a little more complicated. So continuity, experience, skin in the game, and liquidity are the four things that I think you should ask. And then the accredited investor, and that was your question, the accredited investor is smart enough to read the documents, read the private placement memorandum, the exhibit about the property, and hopefully make a decision. One of the things that I think is troubling today is I think the investors have a responsibility on their own part to meet the level of sophistication. Meaning, if you're going to invest in apartment buildings, maybe you should learn something about apartment buildings. I don't believe it's Paul's business. I don't think it's any of my clients' business to actually educate the investors of the multifamily industry. And there's plenty of places investors can go to get that information on this. It's not not hidden. But I see investors investing in apartment buildings one day and uh, mobile home parks the next day. And we just did a blind pool on racehorses. So all sorts of crazy stuff. So I think that's important for the investor to be knowledgeable about what they're going to invest in. You've written a book. Why did you write it? And what is it about? I wrote a book way back in 1995. My first edition was called It's a Whole New Business. And I've just come out with the fourth edition. It's not quite ready for publishing on Amazon, but it probably will be by the end of this uh, in a month from whenever this is broadcast. And uh, the reason I said it's a whole new business is I wanted, I wrote it for real estate people and I wanted them to know, as I said, the first mistake that when they're pulling money, they're leaving the real estate business 
and they're really going into the securities business. And I wanted to give them a primer on that. In those days, I was teaching CCIM classes, heavily involved in education for the commercial real estate broker. And I just saw too many people uh, making mistakes. Well, thank you for this interview, Gene. I'm going to link in the show notes your contact information with your law firm, as well as the contact information or the link to your book. I really appreciate it and taking the time today for um, answering these questions about the legal side of syndication. Okay. Well, Paul, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You can find Gene's contact information as well as information about his book, It's a Whole New Business, in this episode's show notes. Thank you for listening to this episode of In-Depth Commercial Real Estate. You can contact us at info at in-depthrealestate.com.